Book fourteen, chapter three of Round the Block by John Belbooten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Love crowned. Late on a fair afternoon of May, wedding guests began to assemble at old Van Quintum's house. The old gentleman had been out of society many years, and he improved this happy occasion to bring together his few remaining relatives and friends of his former business days. Heavy antique carriages rolled up to the door, with retired merchants and their wives. The retired merchants were of a pattern not altogether extinct in New York, who, at the ages of sixty years and upward, had cleared their skirts of business and settled down to a calm retrospect of the past, and serene anticipations of the future. They were evidently destined for a good old age, and had fat pocket-books to help them through. The proper place to look for this class of retired merchants is on the tax-books, and not in public assemblies, or among the directing boards of benevolent institutions. They are good, charitable souls, but having got out of business they desire to keep out of it literally leaving to a younger generation the task of managing men and affairs. A more stylish vehicle deposited at the door a bachelor bank president, who was not only the old personal friend of the host, but his trusted adviser in business affairs. The parlor of the blank bank was one of the few places that old Van Quintum still visited in the bustling haunts of the city and to old Van Quintum's house the bachelor bank president made monthly pilgrimages of friendship. He was a handsome man of fifty, with long white hair which matched beautifully with his yet ruddy cheeks, and a figure portly and full of strength. Nobody but himself knew why so eligible a man remained a bachelor. In a humpbacked chaise drawn by an exemplary horse, there rode a fat and pleasant old gentleman who was uncomfortably swathed about the neck with a white cravat. He crawled from his narrow coop with the nimbleness of one who is on professional business. He was followed by his wife, a little woman, who was the mother of ten children from two to twenty years of age, just two years apart, and all strongly resembling their father. This fat pleasant old gentleman was the old-fashioned minister of the old-fashioned church to which Mr. Van Quintum had belonged for forty years. The little woman was his second wife, and there was a first crop of children, who had been safely launched on the world for many years, and were doing extremely well. The sole surviving relatives of old Van Quintum were three elderly ladies, who by some contagious fatality remained unmarried. After pining romantically over their doom for some time, they had settled down to the conviction that they were much happier single than wedded, and that they had escaped a great many dangers and disappointments, which was unquestionably true. It was really pleasant for them to reflect that the snug property which their father left them had not been squandered upon designing husbands, but had been kept improved and added to, until it was one of the prettiest estates on Staten Island. These ladies were first cousins of old Van Quintum, and had an odd habit of staying at home. They came to New York always on important business, 
which could not be transacted by any one else, four times a year, and on those occasions paid state visits to old Van Quintem, who reciprocated the civility by calling on them in a ceremonial way twice every summer. Uncle Ith came on foot and wore his old blue coat with brass buttons, his flowered vest and shining trousers so awkwardly that people who did not know him stared at him as at a strange spectacle. People, and they were many, who did know him, stared at him with a still greater surprise, wondering what extraordinary event in his history was about to occur. Uncle Ith felt the additional embarrassment of fame or notoriety, for an affidavit prepared by Overtop giving the full particulars of his observations from the bell-tower, had been published in all the city papers that morning. Before noon, Uncle Ith had been waited on by six newspaper reporters, to whom he had furnished particulars of his early life, and had promised to sit for his photograph, for the use of an illustrated weekly on the following day. For all these reasons, added to his natural modesty, he pulled the doorbell with a feeling of profound regret, which was followed by a strange desire to run around the corner. Before this desire could have been gratified, the door was opened by a servant, and Uncle Ith was ushered in. The anticipated awkwardness of an introduction to old Van Quintum was prevented by the approach of that gentleman before his name was announced. "'Welcome, welcome,' said he, shaking him by the hand with Dutch fervor. "'I know you from Bog's description, you see. Your statement in the morning papers has lifted a load from several hearts, I can tell you. Bog will be delighted to see you. He was beginning to be afraid you would not come. Hello, Bog!' said the good old gentleman, shouting up the stairs. Here is Uncle Ith. The bridegroom bounded down the stairs with boyish impetuosity, looking so fine that Uncle Ith hardly knew him. It was difficult to realize that the ungainly, ignorant boy of a few years back had become this nice-looking, graceful young gentleman. Thus readily does the rough diamond of a good heart and brain, under the guiding hands of ambition and love, take its polish from contact with the world and with society. "'Dear Uncle Ith,' said the bridegroom. "'Happy to see you, Uncle Ith,' exclaimed Fayette Overtop, who, with Marcus Wilkeson and Matthew Maltboy, had been drawn from the second floor at the mention of his name. Marcus had not before seen Uncle Ith though he had been thinking of him all day. The publication of the old man's affidavit was an entire surprise to Marcus, Overtop and Maltboy having said nothing to him about it. Other people read the document with interest because it solved a mystery, but to Marcus it wore the profounder, vastly greater importance of clearing the last shadow of Fowle's suspicion from his name. It may be unnecessary to say, that it also gave rise to learned and interesting but profitless discussions in several of the papers upon the possibilities of perpetual motion which lasted until the explosion of a steam boiler under the pavement turned every editor to the consideration of steam boilers their nature and habits the rights of owners and of the public 
and the necessity of stringent legislation for the better management of those subterranean powers of good and evil upon being introduced to uncle ith marcus gave the old man's hand a warm pressure but said nothing but uncle ith saw in his eyes an expression of deepest gratitude and he knew what it meant for he had read the report of the inquest at overtop's office and there learned for the first time the unhappy connection of marcus wilkeson with the minford affair maltboy who being one of the appointed groomsmen of the day was in extraordinary spirits was profuse in his congratulations to uncle ith and insisted rather unnecessarily upon introducing him to the retired merchants and the bachelor bank president they had all read his affidavit and regarded him with undisguised interest for a man who has always been a lamb in his shyness and self-depreciation to find himself suddenly transformed into a lion is a cause of no little embarrassment uncle ith was so much flustered by all these tokens of popularity that he could not utter an articulate word but only mumble and wipe his heated brow he wished that the usages of society would permit him to take off his coat as he did in the bell-tower and be comfortable a few more guests arrived mostly of the ancient order and a little too much of one sort to please a lover of variety the advent of mr frump with all his impulsive occidental peculiarities of character fresh upon him was a decided relief to the decorous company already assembled in the parlors in less than ten minutes he was on terms of off-hand friendship with everybody and was telling strange stories of western adventure to a group of eager listeners old van quintem received all his guests with that simple cordiality which leaves no doubt of a sincere welcome the common remark was how well you are looking mr van quintem and it was very true few men at seventy could show a figure so straight cheeks so smooth and an eye so bright the unavailing sorrow which tenanted his heart two years before had gradually disappeared from the hour that his son fled abashed from his presence he had not seen or heard of him and had at last come to regard him as dead though the old gentleman could not have given a good reason for that singular belief except that his son had been a constant cause of sorrow and trouble to him when alive he preferred to think of the lost son not as the ripened villain but as the innocent child prattling upon its mother's knee this mental picture filled a select chamber of the old man's memory but the affection and reverential duty of a son had been supplied by the boy bog and in the virtuous character and filial love of that young man he saw what the innocent child might have grown to had all his prayers and tears been answered when old van quintem's wishes were consulted with regard to the wedding he had but one favor to ask and that was that the ceremony might take place at his house it was a whimsical idea he said but he would like to see his old home gay once more as it used to be years ago besides said he i am rheumatic and might not be able to attend the wedding if held elsewhere 
Mrs. Crull, when she first heard from the lips of the blushing pet that Bog had proposed and been accepted, immediately outlined the plan of a wedding at her house, which should be something unprecedented in point of magnificence. The plan took shape as she thought of it, and she had already settled upon the number of invitations and the other principal arrangements when old Van Quintem's wish was mentioned to her. The sacrifice was a great one, and Mrs. Crull would make it only on condition that she should superintend the preparations with the same freedom as at her own house. Old Van Quintem consented to this, only stipulating that he should pay all the bills, and for over a week before the wedding Mrs. Crull, assisted by that most buxom and busy of women, Mrs. Frump, had taken tyrannical possession of the dwelling and made such extraordinary transpositions of the carpets and pictures and other movable property that old van quintem on surveying the work of renovation hardly recognized the house as his own the only apartment that was not inwardly transformed by these female magicians was the library to that he clung conscious that both his services and his advice were of no value the house was soon filled with guests, or rather appeared to be filled, for the whole number invited and present was only forty, but forty people, moving about uneasily and expecting something, looked like a hundred or more. Among them were many whose only claim to an invitation was their friendship for the host, or Mrs. Crull, or the bride and not any mental, moral, or physical excellence which entitles them to mention in this history. There were two rooms on the second floor upon which the interest of loungers, male and female, was concentrated. In one waited the bridegroom, his groomsmen, Overtop and Maltboy, Marcus Wilkeson and Wesley Tiffles. They were a happy party, and not at all frightened at the approaching nuptials. Bog, for such his friends always did, should and will call him, could not have been happier, far from it, if he had held a scepter in each hand. Overtop was happy in the contemplation of his marriage with that most sensible of girls, Miss Pillbody, which was set down for the week following. The affair would have come off six months before, but for Miss Pillbody's illness, happening soon after her mother's death. In consequence of this illness, her select school had been given up, never to be revived. Poor Overtop did not know how much he loved her until he saw how near he came to losing her. She had completely recovered, was ruddy and pretty with new health, and was Pet's first bridesmaid. Overtop thought pleasantly of her and combed back his intractable cowlick, Matthew Maltboy was happy because he had taken a serious fancy to Miss Trapper, the second bridesmaid, a charming but peculiar girl, and the particular juvenile friend of Mrs. Frump. Matthew had met this young lady two or three times and had suffered sweetly from her black eyes. Marcus Wilkeson was happy in his contented bachelorhood, in the happiness of his niece and of all around him and in the clearing up of the Minford enigma. Wesley Tipples was happy because happiness was his constitutional disposition, 
under all circumstances and in all weathers. The arrival of Uncle Ith was the only event that had drawn this good-natured party from their retreat, and those who watched for their reappearance were disappointed. In the other room, the bride had been dressing for several hours and was still hard at it, under the immediate supervision of the indefatigable Mrs. Krull, Mrs. Frump, and the two bridesmaids. Only the favored few were admitted to this retreat of mysteries. But they were kindly communicative. They brought back minute reports of the appearance and condition of the bride-elect in the various stages of her enrobement and ornamentation, and there was not a woman in the house who did not, every ten minutes, have the image of Helen Wilkeson stamped on her mind as accurately as the changeful phases of an eclipse on the photographer's plate. At the soft, calm, mystic love-making, marrying twilight hour, the bridal party took their stand near the southern end of the great double parlor. The forty guests were grouped before them, an audience without seats. Pet was pale and leaned for support on Bog's arm. He stood firm, erect, unblenching, with that instinct of physical strength which one feels when the woman that he loves hangs confidingly on his arm. Fayette Overtop, with his well-known dislike for conventionalism, was thinking how tedious all that formality was, and how much more sensible to be married by an alderman or justice of the peace privately in two minutes. Miss Pillbody did not agree with her future husband on this point, and was thinking, at that very moment, what a solemn thing marriage was, and with what ceremonious deliberation it ought to be entered upon. Matthew Maltboy had had great experience as a groomsman, and he speculated with perfect composure on this important question whether the gentle tremor of Miss Trapper's hand was caused altogether by the fluttering novelty of her situation, or partly by the love-enkindling contact of their interlocked elbows. As the six took their chosen positions, and gazed at a particular pattern in the carpet, selected by them at a private rehearsal in the morning, they were the subject of mental comment by the forty guests, the women, looking at the costly dress of the bride, pronounced her beautiful, the men never noticing her dress, but observing her pale face and heavy eyes, were not vividly impressed with her loveliness. Bog was admired by all, and envied by none to whom his history was known. The old ladies took a mild maternal interest in him, because he was an orphan, and the young ladies thought extremely well of him because he was a strong, gallant, handsome fellow. Overtop was regarded with curiosity as the reputed hero of the Slapman scandal. Matthew Maltboy was universally condemned as too fat, and, with that brief criticism, was dismissed. Miss Pillbody was pronounced a little proud, because she stood straight with shoulders thrown back, which was her usual attitude. Miss Trapper was admitted to be a very modest and diffident creature, because she had a slight stoop in the back, which was chronic. Old Van Quintum stood near the wedding party, and recalled with fond minuteness the hour when one, 
about the same age as Pet, and resembling her in the freshness of her youthful beauty, had crowned him with happiness. Mrs. Krull was close by, and looked at the bride whom she had dressed with the pride of an artist. Mrs. Frump stood next to her, and shared in the same sentiments. Marcus Wilkeson's appointed place was somewhere in the neighborhood of the bride, but he shrank away to the side of Uncle Ith, who also obstinately clung to the other end of the room. The venerable clergyman stepped into the center of the small open space which had been left in front of the bridal party, and uttered a cough, at which signal the buzz of conversation ceased. The ceremony was very brief and simple, according to the ritual of the Dutch church, and people were married by it before they knew it. The minister had received in advance a fee of unprecedented size, which was at that moment lying at the bottom of his wife's pocket, and which that good woman had already spent, in imagination, on a new bonnet for herself, a new hat for the minister, dresses for the girls, books for the boys, and playthings for the baby. If the dimensions of the fee had any effect whatever on the mind of the excellent minister, that effect was to hurry up the ceremony and make the two one with the least possible delay. At last the magical binding words were spoken, and the husband, stooping proudly to the not averted face of his blushing wife, gave her the first kiss and at the same instant a little band of musicians with chosen instruments secretly stationed in the library of which the door was now thrown open struck up mendelssohn's divine wedding march as its jubilant notes floated through the house the round of congratulations commenced blessed pet what had she ever done she thought so far as giddy happiness would allow her to think to merit all these kisses, of which her two shy uncles bestowed two. These benedictions, these tears, and above all, the possession of this noble heart by her side, henceforth to be all her own, the exultant peals of the wedding march, that highest expression of triumphal love, but faintly interpreted her joy. The bridegroom received his full share of the universal good wishes. Everybody was pleased with his behavior, and the bachelor bank president and other members of the old school of gentlemen pronounced him a glorious young fellow, a refreshing contrast to the puny cadaverous youth of the day, and altogether worthy to have flourished thirty years ago. The bridesmaids and groomsmen were not neglected either and Miss Pillbody and Miss Trapper thought that the next best thing to getting married was to assist others in the operation. As for old Van Quintum, after kissing the bride and calling Bog his son, and giving both of them his blessing, he had retired from the room to hide the tears of happiness which not even seventy years of this hardening world could keep from his eyes. For the second time in five minutes Amos Frump approached Matthew Maltboy and shook hands with him. Fat and jolly as ever, said he. From the first adjective Matthew recoiled, though he tried to justify the propriety of the second by a laugh. And I like you, hang me if I don't, said Mr. Frump, 
with Californian bluntness, because you're fat and jolly. But here's wifey, and I know she wants to say something to you. So I do, said Mrs. Frump. My head was so full of business today that I had quite forgotten it. But you must step aside with me, she added, looking significantly at Miss Trapper. Matthew stepped aside, and she placed her lips to his ear and whispered, What do you think of Miss Trapper? A very pretty girl, said Matthew. So she is, and one of the best-hearted creatures that ever lived. A little singular in one respect, perhaps. What is that? Oh, she speaks out her mind, that's all. But then you always know where to find her. She has not spoken any of it to me at all events, said Matthew. I can't get her to talk. That's because she's modest. Cultivate her, and you'll find her a splendid girl. Between you and me, I have recommended you to her, and depend upon it, she will meet you halfway. All right, whispered Matthew gratefully. Here the full voice of old Van Quintum announced dinner, for which the elderly ladies had been demurely waiting for some time. Two by two the bridal party and the guests marched to the banquet, spread in the long, broad dining-room, which was one of the best features of this sturdy, old-fashioned house. What the bill of fare was, what tunes the band played in the library, what kind things were said to the bride and bridegroom, what compliments were breathed into young female ears and not rebuked, what vows of love were exchanged, what courteous remarks of the old school were made by the bachelor bank president, what ancient jokes were passed off by the wits of the party as new, what abominable conundrums were then and there honestly invented, what overwhelming confusion Uncle Ith experienced when he found himself seated next to a lady who talked loud at him, and how he wished himself at home one hundred feet from the ground. What complete happiness was felt and expressed by everybody, but especially by old Van Quintum and Marcus Wilkeson. What improbable stories were told by Mr. Frump, what philosophical sayings uttered on the spur of the moment by Fayette Overtop, what slightly impertinent but always amiable remarks advanced by Wesley Tiffles. All this might be imagined with a slight mental effort, but not so Matthew Maltboy's new misfortune. Profiting by Mrs. Frump's friendly suggestion, Matthew had exhausted all his resources of conversation in an effort to interest Miss Trapper, she had listened and had returned faultlessly proper replies, and had conducted herself so much like all the other young women that Matthew had ever met, that he was puzzled to guess in what respect her singularity consisted. He longed to see a piece of that mind which, according to Mrs. Frump, she was in the habit of exhibiting to people. He was soon gratified. Miss Trapper had remarked that, in a few days, she was going to visit her friends in Chemung County, and would probably remain there three months. It struck Matthew as the right time to make a point. Then I shall not see you, Miss Trapper, during all that time, he said with a sigh. Miss Trapper leveled a sharp glance at him and said, I suppose not. 
The remark was tartly made, but Matthew had noticed that she habitually spoke quick and short. Our acquaintance has thus far been very pleasant, Miss Trapper, at least on my side, whispered Matthew. Must it stop here? To which Miss Trapper replied, I don't know. Though the observation was not encouraging, it was, on the other hand, not entirely forbidding. Since we are to be separated for three months, Miss Trapper, might I solicit the great privilege of corresponding with you occasionally? Miss Trapper's thin lips expelled two words like shot out of a gun. What for? What for? echoed the amazed Matthew. Why, for the pleasure of exchanging our ideas, you know. That would be a bore, said Miss Trapper. I didn't understand you, said Matthew, distrusting his ears. I said it would be a bore, a bore, returned Miss Trapper with painful distinctness. I hate letter-writing. Oh, ah, do you, said Matthew feebly. Perhaps you would like some pickled cauliflower, Miss Trapper? Thank you. Matthew handed the pickled cauliflower to her, and held his tongue. Satisfied with what he had seen of Miss Trapper's singularity, and not at all anxious to receive a larger piece of her mind. I am doomed to be a bachelor, thought Matthew, with a suppressed groan. But hope, which attends upon fat and lean men alike, whispered in his mind's ear, Why not marry a woman as fat as yourself? A capital idea, thought Matthew, and if there's no other way to find one, I'll advertise for her. Dinner was protracted to a length that seemed tedious to all but the representatives of the old school. When it did come to an end, the party adjourned to the parlors, where a reasonable time was devoted to conversation and flirtation. At length the musicians, having taken their wedding dinner in their apartment, and drank full bumpers which somehow never interfere with the accuracy of musical performances, to the health of the happy pair, struck up a quadrille, which was at once interpreted by the younger people as a signal for dancing. Two sets were instantly formed, and rattled through with. The lancers followed, and was liked so much that the musicians were called upon to repeat it three times. The sets had now increased to four, filling the two parlors, and crowding the elderly people to the wall or the hallway. Then, luckily, old Van Quintum bethought himself of the old-fashioned contradance as a contrivance for bringing his contemporaries on their legs. By an extraordinary piece of good fortune, the musicians had learned it, and played it at a silver wedding the week previous. As the familiar notes, not heard for years, saluted the ears of the bachelor bank president, he showed the animation of an old war-horse at the sound of the trumpet. Now is our time, said he. Moved by common impulse, the members of a past generation rose and took their places. Old Van Quintum, temporarily forgetting his rheumatism, led off, escorting Mrs. Krull. The bachelor bank president took charge of a widow, in whose breast he had revived feelings that flourished twenty years before. 
The retired merchants brought each other's wives upon the floor. Even Uncle Ith came out from his seclusion in a corner, where he had been listening to the sound of his own fire-bell, rung by other hands that night, and felt that here, at least, he should make no blunders. The tall, talkative lady, from whom there seemed to be no escape, had fastened on him as a partner. The good clergyman was the only old or middle-aged gentleman who did not take his place in the set, and he looked on and laughed. The dance commenced, slow at first, then gradually faster. The younger people, when they came to understand the simple movement, fell into the chain couple after couple until it extended into the hallway, and through it into the parlors again. Everybody was drawn in now, old and young, married and unmarried, the minister and his wife only excepted, and they marked the measure with their heels. Round and round, and faster and faster, went the chain, with its constantly changing links. The musicians, playing the same strains over and over again, became frenzied by the repetition, and doubled the time without knowing it. Legs that had entered slow and stately upon the interminable maze became, without the knowledge or consent of their owners, nimble and gymnastical. It was a delightful peculiarity of this wonderful dance that couples could withdraw without breaking up the figure. The bride and groom, acting upon this privilege, slipped out of the flying circle and sought, unaccompanied, the solitude of the vine-covered piazza behind the house, there to commune for a moment upon their new-found happiness. The night was calm. A faint breeze from the south stirred up secret odors in the hearts of dew-covered flowers, and musically sighed through the leaves and vines. The heavens were dark but unclouded, and, as the lips of the lovers met in one clinging kiss, the host of stars beamed down upon them, and proclaimed an eternity of love. End of Book 14, Chapter 3